Good morning. It's good to have you here with us today. If you're in Kidmo, you can head on to Kidmo. If you're our guest, Kidmo is our environment for our second through fifth graders, and uh, they have a opportunity to go have their own time of teaching, small groups, uh, games, and do little things that they do in an, as well. So if you're a guest and you've got a second through fifth grader, you're welcome to follow them and just see what they're doing and let your children take part in that. I hope my voice holds out. Uh, <clears throat> there was a 10-second game yesterday that just about took it from me. Is anybody else struggling with their voice this morning? Uh, we had a yeah, so we had a lot of fun watching Tennessee win. Uh, they didn't win for most of the game, but it was fun to watch them win. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, following the rest of the season with them. We're continuing our series this morning uh, called Free. And the whole purpose of this series is to talk about what does it mean to be free in Christ. Uh, Galatians 5.1 tells us that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Don't subject yourselves again to a yoke. Of bondage. And the reality is, for some of us, we know the gospel, we know the truth of the gospel, but yet we still struggle inwardly on what does it look like to truly be free. Now, the feeling of being held captive is not a good feeling. And if you've never felt like you were unable to break out of a situation that you're in, maybe you don't uh, feel what it, being enslaved truly feels like. My guess is that most of you do. You've been enslaved to something within your life. And so far, we've talked about being free through Christ. We've talked about not only being free from sin, but being financially free. Many in our nation struggle with financial freedom because they are honestly dealing with so much debt that they have incurred that they are enslaved to trying to pay that back. We've talked about being free from having to worry about failing One of the wonderful things about following Christ and knowing God is that all worthy things have already been conquered by him. And so you and I are free to fail. And if we fail, those are many times the very ways God is intending to help us to grow and to help us become the people he wants us to become. Today, I want to share with you something that I think is huge right now in our culture. It's also a problem in our church and most of us, if not all of us, deal with this on some level. Maybe you're dealing with this today. And that is, you are free, not just to wrong someone, but you're free from the judgment when you wrong someone. And you can be free from all of that anger when someone wrongs you. Has anyone in the room ever been wronged? Okay, I think that's everybody except for the shy ones who feel wrong for me even asking that question. I'm not put my hand up. All right. Let me ask you this. Has anyone in this room ever wronged someone else? Okay, a couple of you have. All right. Maybe not as many as has been wronged. But I, I'm sure if we're <clears throat> excuse me, honest, we can come to the place to recognize that we do wrong other people and other people wrong us. And the problem is not that that event happens, because that is life. It is life that we are going to hurt people's feelings. It's life we're going to say something we shouldn't have said, or they're going to say something to us. It's, it's life that you're going to have a bad day, and you're going to eventually take that out on somebody else, or they're going to have a bad day and take it out on you. It's, it's life. It's people dealing with each other. It's the reality that we are incapable of living lives without wronging others. And we're incapable of living lives sheltering ourselves from being wronged. Now, what we can do, if we choose to, is we can be free from all of that pain that comes with those very realities. Because what ends up happening when someone wrongs us is a very similar experience to when we knowingly and regretfully wrong someone else. We imprison ourselves in hurt. We imprison ourselves in anger. We imprison ourselves in this place where we're no longer able to move forward because we're so upset about what has just happened. Sometimes you may go to a family event and realize that something that someone did and wronged someone else years ago is still being lived out before your very eyes because they've never come to a place of forgiveness. I want to share a story with you, and it comes from 1 Samuel. So we're going in the Old Testament. And it's a story about David, and it's a story about Saul. And I thought about different titles for this. 
I thought about a title called Forgiveness, a Knife, and a Urinal. But I didn't want to post that because I didn't think that sounded appropriate. But that really is what we're going to talk about today. So I hope you guys are game and you're awake. Are you okay down here? You need a Kleenex or something? All right. But that's, that's literally what we're going to be talking about today. And one of the wonderful things is whether you are a person who has been wronged or if you're someone who has wronged you or someone else has wronged you, both of those instances are handled in this very passage and often by the same person. So if you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24, I want you to know as we get started that David, uh, at this point, had been chosen as the next king. If you're a, a student of history in the Old Testament, there was never a king before Saul in Israel. In fact, when the people rose up and said, we need a king, we need somebody to lead us because everybody else has a leader. We need that. God said, I am your leader. You don't need anybody else. Just follow me. But eventually people continued to cry out and God said, fine. And so God selected Saul. Saul became their first king. And eventually Saul became so enamored with his position. He became so enamored with his power and how wonderful a person he really was that he began to lose sight of following the one that should have led him. He lost sight of following God. And so God came along and said, there is going to be another successor to Saul. His reign is coming to an end because he has forgotten to follow me. He's no longer seeking me. And it's a wonderful story where David is chosen from all the rest of his brothers. And he is put in a place where you will be king, but not yet. Now, if you're a student of politics... It's not good to be named the successive king while the current king is alive. It's not generally good for you. Most people in power don't like to know that their replacement is waiting in the wings. Usually if something's going to happen like that, they find a reason for that person waiting in the wings to have an accident and disappear. And sometimes they actually go to war to stop losing their power. And this is really what has been happening as we come up to 1 Samuel chapter 24, David has his army. He has built a name for himself. He has done some incredible things, and the people love him. They know that he's been anointed the next king, and Saul is doing everything he can to hold on to that power. And so he has chased David and David's mighty men, as they came to be called, all over the place. David was able to elude them. At times, when people were being oppressed, David and his mighty men would come together and they would fight for the people of Israel. And so it is this place and time that we come to this strange, strange event that Saul receives word where David is hiding out. And it's in a cave in this region. And as they're coming through, well, I'm just going to let you hear how this story unfolds. First Samuel chapter 24, verse 1 begins. It says, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. See, I told you. There it is right there. Literally, this uh, the word to relieve himself literally means to cover your feet. (laughs) Let that sink in. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. It was a little awkward. And the men of David said to him, Here is a day which the Lord said to you. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, here's the problem. Most of you are going, let me get get this straight. David ends up in the cave. The Saul goes in to use the bathroom and he has the opportunity to end this. And he chooses to cut off a piece of his jacket. And that's it. Is that how we're to understand that this is going down? And the truth is, no, that's not how this is going down. That's not exactly what has happened, but it kind of is. As Paul comes into this cave, 
you have to keep in mind, if you're familiar with Old Testament Jewish custom, and it's not just Old Testament, Jews today still follow the same custom. When they would go out to battle or when they would live their lives, I mean, on an everyday basis, they would consistently go out with one piece of clothing that demonstrated they were faithful to God. And that was called a talent or what you and I would know as a prayer shawl. If you've ever seen a prayer shawl, I have one. I, I, I can't find it. We've lost it in the move, I guess. But if I had a prayer shawl to show you, what it looks like is just this long cloth and on four corners are four tassels. And there was incredible significance to this for every Jew. If we read about it in Numbers chapter 15, it says, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all of the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes. This is crucial to the rest of this story. We do this so that we can ensure that we are remembering to follow the commandments and that we're not following ourselves, which are you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now, even today in contemporary culture, and I've got a few pictures to show you. Would you put up that first picture, Ethan? This is a cloak that he would wear, that, that any observant Jew would wear. Not only did he wear this, Jesus wore one of these, and Saul, and David, and the army. Every single person who was adherent to Jewish culture would have worn one of these robes. And you'll notice these long pieces of string that are hanging down. These are called tzitzits, and they're, they're the tassels. Now, if you've ever seen one of these... They are hugely important to anyone who's an observant Jew. Whenever God instructed them to begin wearing these, the point was for them to remember that God is with them and they are going to be committed to following the ways of God. If you are going to be observant, if you are going to have God's favor, you had to follow the rules. That's the way the Old Testament worked. And he said, I will be with you if you have this garment. And so they would wear these. And many places you read about the prayer shawl in different ways that you may not recognize. Scripture tells us that whenever we pray, we're not supposed to go out and pray in public for everybody to see us. Instead, we're supposed to go into our prayer closet. Let's look at this next picture. This is literally what a prayer closet looks like. It's not a closet in your house. They would take their prayer shawl, and you can really see the tassels here hanging down in all four corners. And they would take this prayer shawl and cover their head. And it was in that moment they were able to most closely communicate with God. Now, that's important to remember. Because if you didn't do this, and if you didn't have this garment, you were out of order. You were not following the rules. You were not going to be able to experience God's presence. And it demonstrated you did not care about God or what he's commanded. So the prayer shawl is hugely important. As we read through other places in Scripture, it pops up in, in some pretty incredible places. Scripture literally says that we will be able to mount up on wings like eagles. And that imagery really was not that you and I are going to ride an eagle, because I haven't seen an eagle yet except in the movies that could hold me up. I don't know about you, but I'd have to have a whole bunch of them. It would be a lot of fun to watch that. Instead, when they would take their prayer shawl, they would hold it out to their sides and it would fall down to their sides and look like they were wearing wings. Now, the imagery meant that your ability to weather the storm and your ability to overcome the world was dependent totally on God and his word, his law, being observant to him. And so that's literally what he was talking about. Whenever we read about the story, you remember the woman he was bleeding for a long time. She was unclean and she prayed and she was never healed. And she heard that the Messiah might be coming through. And she made her way through the crowd. And you remember she touched, what did she touch? The hem or the edge or the corner of his robe. 
And so what she was doing was she was reaching out and touching the symbol of God's presence and power, recognizing this is the Savior. Now, today, they still wear these robes, and you might imagine that at times this could be uncomfortable. And if you're going out to fight a war, and if you're a soldier, or if you're a king or a general, then it's going to be difficult to walk around with one of these things. It'll get in your way. You want God to be with you, and you need to be observant. Yet, these this kind of gets in your way. And so, there are times, if you go to the next picture, that they'll actually tuck this in their garment. And yet, to be observant, you still have the tassels hanging out. Of your pants. And they would sometimes do that, fold it around themselves, bring their belt around it, and it would hang down to their sides, and yet their tassels would always have to show. This is also where we read about the Pharisees and the criticism of the Pharisees that, if you remember, their tassels were so long they would drag the ground because they wanted people to think, I am the most observant. My tassels are bigger than yours is essentially what he meant. So something this important had to be handled with care. A person who needs to stop and relieve themselves, first of all, they don't if you're a king, no one comes with you. He gets his own place. Now, if you're one of the troops, all right, you guys go over there and do whatever about you need to by the rock. But the king gets some privacy. And so he goes in by himself. And one of the rules with the use of the talent was that you were not to bring it to a place that you could possibly defile this symbol of God's providence. And so you would remove your prayer shawl, you would remove your talent, and you would not take it into the restroom with you. So they still do this today. So imagine the scenario. You're David, and they're following you. They're trying to kill you. And they've been doing this even though God has said, you will be king. Now, here's where we learn a few things about David. We learn a few things about his friends. But this is where it appears God has aligned the stars for everything to work out exactly the way David wants. Have you ever been given the opportunity that you know is the wrong thing to do? But it feels like a good opportunity. There are times that when those opportunities avail themselves, that we will convince ourselves, this is a good thing. We need to do this. This is positive for us. In fact, his own council of friends that were standing around him were telling him, God has delivered him to you. Do what you will. Now, the irony is just unbelievable. Saul would pick the one cave with thousands of caves around where David and his men were hiding. He comes in, he takes off his towelette, he folds it, puts it, lays it to the side so it would stay clean because he knew he had to follow the customs that he had grown up with. And David sneaks up behind and he cuts off the corner or more likely he cut off what? A tassel. Now, in doing this, David's doing several things. Number one, Saul's eventually going to realize his tassel's missing. What happened? Number two, David was not willing to take his life, which he could do right here. But here's the thing. If you, any of you aspire to the monarchy, I don't know if you do or not, but if you aspire to the monarchy, here's a thing through history. If you assassinate your predecessor to gain power, what do you think is likely going to happen to you? You're going to get assassinated. So David could literally have walked in here and ended Saul. God's already anointed me. I'm already justified. He's already acting in a way that is outside of God's commands. Why not? Now, this is the problem with wronging other people. The problem with wronging other people is at some point it felt like the right thing to do. And in David's case, sometimes your friends tell you it's the right thing to do, even when it's not. All of us have done it. We've all been coaxed into it. Maybe you were at school and all your friends were making fun of somebody and you jumped in. Maybe you're at work and everybody's around talking about the latest drama about a coworker and you jump in. Everybody else is doing it. 
I might as well jump in and be a part of this too. Maybe you see an opportunity and you think, you know, this person has something that I want. And they're not paying attention. And it's just sitting right out here ready for me to take. And so we reach out and grab it. Other times we're dealing with things that maybe nobody else knows. We're hurting inside. We're upset about what's going on in our lives. And somebody walks up and they unwittingly and unwillingly are going to experience all of the unrest that's going on inside of me. And so we feel justified because they don't know what I'm going through right now. Many times when the church, we struggle with this because I have never seen another place other than the church where a disagreement breaks relationships. Never seen it more in any other place. I don't see it in the world. I don't see it in schools. I don't see it in the workplace. But in the church, if you and I get cross, we're done. Over and over and over, this happens within the church. Now, we can agree on some things. We can disagree on others. But we can agree at this point, David and Saul are crossed with each other. Saul's trying to kill him. He's trying to take him out. That's understandable. David should, in our mind of justice, be okay with taking out Saul first. I mean, after all, he started it, right? But sometimes that counsel leads us to do things that just aren't right. When he cut off that tassel, what David was doing was not so much just trying to hurt him or or mess up his talent. What he was trying to say is, I judge you because you are not obeying the commands of our God. I judge you. Now, you and I think, well, that's a big deal. I don't care if people judge me. They can cut everything they want to off my hem. It doesn't matter to me. But to them, it mattered. Saul would have put on his clothes and he would have walked out of that cave. Not just another Jew, but king. Not being observant to the customs of following God. Even though it looks like God was delivering his enemy into his hands, David knew ultimately in his heart that the only right path was to obey God. But at this point, he had already blown it. Now, just a few interesting things about the tassels. The reason this was important, these were important, was because they were instructed to tie them a certain way. And they would have different strands of strings that would be following down on each side. And go ahead and go to that next slide. There would be four tassels, the zitzi. On those four tassels, there were going to be five knots. Each knot represented one book of the Torah or the law or God's word and instruction as they knew it. Between those five knots were represented by four spaces. And they would literally run their fingers up and down these tassels throughout the day, wrap them around their fingers. And as they do that, they're supposed to be reflecting on God's commandments. And those, each of those four spaces are supposed to represent One letter for each letter in the name of God represented in Hebrew, Yahweh, which is four letters in Hebrew. As they did that, they would continue to pray and they would continue to think about what, how do I follow God's commands? With all of the knots and all of the tying, if you were to follow this to the letter, there would be six, there would be 613 knotted strings, which at the time, different now, but at the time represented the 613 laws of the Torah. They felt like the law was such a good deal that they added so more sense, so many more since then. There's way more than 613 now to be an observant Jew. So he would wrap that around his finger and this would symbolize, I am following God. He is the Lord of my life. If he tells me to do something, I'm going to do it. My life depends on him. I love him and I will follow him wherever that is. So for David to cut it off is a symbol to say, you do not have a relationship with God. You are not observant. You do not love God. God is not with you and you will perish because God has abandoned you. That is Literally what David is saying through all of this. If we go back to verse Samuel 24, verse 6, he says to his men, listen, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. Now, he's already cut the tassel off, but he's saying, if I go in and kill this man, 
The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Paul. Saul rose up, left the cave, and went on his way. See, at this point, it's easy to say, well, David's the one who's been wronged. But David recognizes that in this action, while he is simultaneously being wronged by Saul, he is wronging other people. Number one, he's wronging Saul because he's cutting off his, his tzitzit. He's cutting it off and he's making judgment upon him. But number two, he's wronging God because there is only one person who holds the place of judge. And it's not him. And so he recognizes that while my emotions are in this, while I mean, I am really, I've got to deal with this problem. This guy's trying to kill me. He recognizes that while he's simultaneously been wronged, he's wronging others. And what we're going to see is an interesting change in David that must come over every person who's going to follow Jesus. And it is this, that when you are wronged, there is one response and one response only. And that is forgiveness. At its core, if you think of the gospel, forgiveness is the basis of everything the gospel is. When you and I are honest about where we are in life, when we are honest about who we are as people, we recognize we're messed up. We recognize we've got problems. We recognize that we wrong God and others, and we sometimes wrong ourselves if that's possible. We recognize that we are a people in need of forgiveness. We read Romans 5, 8, and 9, which we read last week as well. God shows his love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The end of the day, you and I, without Christ, are destined for the wrath of God. That is where we are headed. We have no choice. That's where we're going. We are incapable of changing that path. Yet, when we recognize what God did through Christ, even though God had been wronged by us from the very beginning, he chose to forgive us. That being the reality of the gospel, what I struggle to understand is why Christians struggle to forgive each other or the rest of the world. We forgive ourselves all the time, don't we? We justify, we reason, we rationalize. But we don't forgive others. I think the reason is because when we feel wrong, now some of us would define a wrong differently. I define it as that thing that brings hurt to us, that we feel it. And that is the very reason that many of us struggle to forgive. It's because we feel it. We feel it deeply. And it's hard to rationalize a way of feeling. So for David, he has a choice to make. I've done that which is wrong in the eyes of God. I have done something wrong to Saul, and I've done something wrong to God. And he says and he recognizes that it is never too late to change course when we have wronged others. Never. And the lie that we tell ourselves is it is too late. It's already done. It's already happened. There's no way out of this. I'm just going to have to live with the consequences. They're not going to talk to me anymore. Our relationship's over. If we work together, then work is going to be terribly awkward from now on. But it's never too late to change course when we realize we've wronged others. So we keep going and we read a little bit farther. Starting in verse 8, it says, Afterward, David rose and went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, which there's some, you know, this would be kind of fun if you were David, I suppose. Let him know what has just happened. It's not fun for David because he recognizes he's done something wrong. But he rose, went out of the cave, and he called after Saul. My Lord, the king, which is important. He recognizes the place that he holds. He knows that it's a place he will hold one day, but for now, God has not removed him yet from power. And so he calls after him for who he is. When Saul looked behind him, and I would love to see the expression on Saul's face when this happened, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? 
Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hands in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord for my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. In other words, this is God's place, not mine. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And this is where we come to the reality of this type of freedom. And that repentance breaks the chains of wronging others. Repentance is the core of the gospel. With forgiveness comes once we have expressed repentance. When Jesus first talked about the gospel, he says, repent. Whenever John is out in the desert and he's proclaiming the coming of the Messiah, he says what? It is crucial to the life of a follower of Jesus for repentance to be a regular part of it. Repentance is not, oh, I feel bad I did that. Repentance is saying, I will change the way I'm living. I will change what I'm doing. And so for David, this was a moment of repentance in which I can imagine in his mind and in his heart had been imprisoned by rage, fear, and anger at being sought by Saul. Yet he repented. He asked forgiveness. And I want to encourage you, if you're someone who struggles with this, if, if you have wronged someone, And you know you need to fix this. Maybe inside you don't want to fix it. But you know if I'm going to follow God, then this is what he would want me to do. I need to fix this. I have wronged them. They deserve for me to say that and to repent. Let me just encourage you in in three things. Number one, ask for it even when you don't think you're going to receive it. Ask for forgiveness even if you don't think you're going to receive it. Now, here's what Christians do. We have this conversation in our heads, not with other people. God, please forgive me for what I did to them. Please let them know I'm so sorry for what I did. We do this all the time. Anybody? Does anybody else do that? Yes, we do this all the time. God, if you'll just, you know, bless them, curse me for today, not tomorrow, today will be enough, but curse me for today for what I have done wrong to them and bless them and that'll make everything okay. And God will just look down and go, okay, cool, we'll do that. No, never. God never says that. Actually go to a person and ask for forgiveness. Now, here's the thing. We live in a culture where forgiveness is rarely given anymore. We are offended at every single thing that could possibly offend anybody. And if we're not, then we come up with something to be offended by. That's the world we live in. And it's the reality that if you go to a person, there's a high likelihood. And as I've already said, even within the church, that they're not going to receive it. Or they'll say, okay. But you know whether they received it or not, right? Because you know whether that relationship continues or not. Because most of the time, if they haven't received it, the relationship is over. Go and ask for it, even if you don't think you're going to get it. There are some people that you may have wronged, and you may feel like you rightfully wronged them, if that's possible. Go even if you don't think you'll receive it. Because asking forgiveness is less about receiving it from them as much as it is about the repentance That's a part of that process. I recognize I've done something wrong. The second thing is this, and this is so crucial, act in accordance with the repentance. What do I mean by that? You know what I mean by that. Don't just tell me you're sorry and then go about and do the exact same thing tomorrow. If you're really sorry, it will change the way you live today. It will change the way you live today. That's one of the crucial understandings of what it means to follow Christ. There are a lot of people that attend church. There are a lot of people that say they're a Christian. There are a lot of people, whenever they get a survey and they've got to check their religious belief or preference, they'll check Christian. But at the end of the day, their heart is not in it. Asking forgiveness is not about getting it from somebody. Asking forgiveness is about changing our hearts that led us here to begin with. And if they never forgive me, I'm still the better for it. 
because my heart has changed. And what we know and what we all do at some point is we repeat the behavior that has wronged someone. And what we know from experience is that they weren't really sorry to begin with. They just said that. But what we know in our hearts is that when we truly come to a place of repentance, it really does change us and change how we act in the future. I wrote this down. I mean, same thing I've just said, but I thought this was clever, so I'll say it. If you constantly repeat the behavior that you're repenting from, you are not. What's the word? Repenting. Follow along. We're almost through. Stay with me. Third thing is this. Recognize the consequences of being unrepentant are more costly than being accountable for wronging someone else. And this is crucial. If you see the world through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, then the world does not exist solely in the elements that we see, the rooms that you and I walk in and out of, the ground that's under our feet, the air that's somewhere up here in the air. The world is so much bigger than that. It's so more, much more vast than that. The world is spiritual as much as it is physical. This life that we live, one day is going to end. You and I, we're going to die. Maybe we'll be in a box, maybe we won't, but we're going to die at some point. And at that point, what we know when we see the world through the eyes of the Holy Spirit is this is just the beginning of something better, not the ending of anything here. And so whenever we recognize that spiritually my life matters more than how I live from day to day, it is the condition of my soul, it is the condition of my heart, it is my ability to truly be a person that experiences the world as it really is, the cost of not being repentant is higher than being held accountable for something we did wrong. I remember the first time I ever was held accountable. It wasn't the first time, but in a, in a way that I really felt it. it was when I was a kid. I was about five years old, and I had gone shopping with my mom. And we had gone through, I don't remember where it was. I want to say it was Hills. Anybody from Knoxville remember Hills Department Store? That's where you got the high fashion stuff. Not really, but that's where we shopped. And so I remember walking through one time, and it was around Easter, and they had these cool pop-up Easter eggs. You remember those? They're probably, like, unsafe now. They probably led to thousands and thousands of tragic children's deaths or something. I don't know. I don't see them anymore. But you would put them down, and then they would have a spring in them, and over time, they would just pop back up, and there would be a little fake chicken in there. And it was just the most wonderful thing for a five-year-old. I just thought it was awesome. Well, my mom didn't think they were awesome, not as much as I did, and so she wouldn't let me have one. So I was wronged by my mother. She wouldn't let me have what I wanted. I rectified that wrong, and I got it anyways. And if you've ever tried to walk out of the store with a big plastic egg that springs open and a chick pops out with it in the pocket and you're only five years old, it stands out, not in a good way. And so as I got in the car, they recognized it. And I had to walk in and tell them what I had done. Now, five years old, I thought I was going to jail. I mean, I'm going to the big house for the rest of my life. It was a good existence so for now. I didn't know any different. But oftentimes, the reality is we reject going back and making something right because we fear the consequences are greater than just letting it slide. But a person who follows the, speak, the, the words of the Holy Spirit in their life knows that's not true, that instead, when we willingly refuse to repent and answer for our actions, that's way more costly. It leads us into a path so far from God. We recognize that the consequences of being unrepentant are more costly than being accountable for wronging someone else. Those are the moments that we say, I will ask forgiveness. Repentance is crucial. Let's finish up this story. Verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As a proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. 
what David is doing here is not only is he choosing to get out of the pain of wronging someone else, what he is choosing to do is he is choosing to forgive that person who has wronged him. It's going both ways. He could hold on to this. People would be justified. Even his friends around him said, look what he's been doing. Go in and take care of this guy. And he says, no, this is not what I'm going to do. And so David is choosing to remove the chains of unforgiveness by placing all of this in God's hands. And what we can learn from this is that when you are wronged, there are times that we must give this into the hands of God to handle. It is not our place to handle it. Now, the world doesn't believe me. And the world will not follow in this. But I'm hoping that we in this room will. Because we are not the world if we know Jesus Christ. And so the reality is David chose that he's not going to be enslaved by either one of these. I'm not going to be enslaved by doing something that is wrong in the eyes of God. And I will not be enslaved by holding his lack of observance of God's law against him. And through that, we find freedom. If we finish the story again, verse 16, this is, where, this is how Saul responds. It says, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. This is huge what he is saying here. See, it is in this action that Saul recognizes the course of action he has chosen is wrong. It is in David's willingness to repent and ask forgiveness and offer forgiveness, even when it hasn't been offered, that he recognizes his own sin and his own need to repent. You have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. See, David's act of repentance triggered Saul's. And for Saul, this is an incredibly important moment because he's going to let go of the chains of anger against David because he's losing his kingdom, which was not David's fault. That was Saul's fault. But he expressed it towards David. And it was David's willingness to forgive that he recognized that I need to ask forgiveness and I need to repent. For a king to say, you will be king. This will be your kingdom. Just be fair to me and my family is an admission that my actions have led to these consequences. He's owning up to his own faults. He's owning up to the consequences of his own actions. Here's what I would leave you with. Forgiveness is the key that unlocks your prison of hurt. Hurt never does anyone any good. Anger never does anyone any good. Yet anger always begins with one emotion. Do you know what that emotion is? It's hurt. We get angry when we get hurt. We don't always see it that way, and guys certainly don't see it that way. But we get angry because we get hurt. You said something, and I'm mad at you because what you said hurt me. You've done something, and I'm mad at you because I can't believe you did that thing, and that hurt me. It all begins there. And that hurt and that pain becomes a prison that continues to enclose around us, to withdraw and to become angry, and eventually to lash out at others so that they'll experience the same pain you're experiencing. Forgiveness will change all that. In reality, when we look at our relationship with God, we have wronged God. But in His love, He gave us His Son so that not only we could live, but we could be forgiven. That's what God has done for us. If God has done that for us, and we're going to follow after his example, then we must do that for others. They have wronged us. We must forgive them. And we in the church have to get this right. We have to get this right. 
we can no longer continue going on. Somebody did something that made me mad, and I'm done with them. Happens all the time. We've got to choose a better way. We've got to go forward in a way that demonstrates love because that is what we are called to. I want to read you just a short piece of an article out of Relevant Magazine. It was a couple that uh, it was, was, I guess, the wife that wrote this. Her name was Kara Joyner. It was entitled, The Most Damaging Attitude in Our Churches, Why Subtle Cynicism Doesn't Look Like Jesus. And I want to submit to you that this subtle cynicism has invaded our ranks and it has led us to some very unhealthy places. But if we'll face it and deal with it, we can overcome the consequences. It says, It was an attitude I learned in church. And I used to believe it was a strength. I thought I was simply a critical thinker full of constructive insights. My husband and I shared a gift for reflection, in quotes, and spung many conversations around what we considered to be compelling observations about what the church and other people were doing wrong and what they could do better. Never mind the fact that our tips were not actually being presented to those we believed would benefit from them. At least we saw the problems, right? But with time... The satisfaction of hearing ourselves talk began to fade and a nauseating feeling settled in its place. No matter how positive a light we tried to cast it in, we were filling up on bitterness and tasting the result. Suddenly, without even realizing it, we had become cynics and the toxic effect would be felt in our marriage, our relationships, and our ability to communicate Christ's love for the world. When we become a cynic, all that means is we become overly critical of everyone and everything around us. Some of us struggle with that because we see some pretty terrible things in the world. It's easy to become cynical. It's something that I regularly have to deal with. It's easy to look around and rather than dealing with what's going on in our own hearts to figure out what's wrong with everybody else's heart. It's so much easier. And yet what we end up doing is we put them in a box and we put our hearts and our souls in a prison. The answer to that prison is forgiveness. It is recognizing that you and I were never meant to be the everything. That's only God's role. But you and I must change if we're going to see this continue, this message go out in a world who doesn't want to hear it. How can they hear God's message of love if we don't love each other? How how can they hear that there's an answer for all of the things wrong in the world when we can't deal with the things that are wrong in the church? If we're going to live this out and live in that world that really exists, not just this physical place that you and I get up in the morning and go to work and come home at night, we're going to get it right. We've got to change what's going on in our hearts. And that begins with repentance. It begins with offering forgiveness for others. And when we have wronged somebody else, not letting that relationship be damaged, we go and we ask forgiveness for our own actions. At times having to pay the consequences for those sins. By the way, I didn't go to prison for the rest of my life for stealing that Easter egg. In case you all were on the fence, not sure how that story turned out. There are at times consequences. But a lot of times the consequences in our heads are far greater than the consequences in real life. There's something amazing that happens when a person comes and asks for forgiveness. You can almost literally feel the chains breaking around your own heart. It's really an amazing thing. That's put there by the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to leave you with two things. We have wronged God, but in his love, he gave his son's life so we could be forgiven. Therefore, number two, if we are followers of Jesus, we've got to follow his example of forgiveness. If we don't do that, then how can we at all claim to know the glories of the gospel itself? I want to pray with you. I also want to invite you to stick around we're going to be having a, it's, there's a, quite a spread over there, a wedding reception for, uh, for Wes and Marie. It's, you may be thinking, when's the wedding? Well, we've already had the wedding, but this is a reception for you can go hang out and eat. There's going to be, it's going to be in the Kidmo room. So if you've got kids in our kids ministry area, please grab those so the, the leaders can participate. Also, you can spread out around the church. There's a central area where food and where Marie and Wes will be. So you guys need to be in Kidmo, by the way. And then you can spread out to the green room or the event space on the other side of the kids' areas. You can come back in here or or do that. But we invite you to stick around. There's lots of good food out there. So we hope that you'll stick around for that. All right, let's pray. Father, 
God, I thank you for the forgiveness that you've given us when we've not deserved it. Many times we haven't even asked for it, and yet you constantly have forgiven us. I thank you for that grace. And Lord, I pray that you would help us be able to do that for the relationships that we have. Father, I pray for those in this room and all they can think about right at this moment is how bad the things are that have been done to them. They're just rotting with inside this prison that is struggling to understand why did they deserve this hurt and this pain. Father, I can't answer that, but I do know that you can release them from that pain through forgiveness. It has to be supernatural. It has to be through your Holy Spirit molding and shaping their heart to become more the way you designed it to be instead of what we have made it to be. And I pray that you would give them that freedom. Father, I pray for those in this room who are struggling this morning, knowing they have deeply hurt somebody else, but not knowing how to deal with it, not knowing how to restore that relationship. And Father, I pray you would give them the courage to not only be repentant within themselves, but that they would go and share that repentance with the person that they wronged. I pray that in this room, we would begin to see relationships healing. And I pray that we would take this outside of this room into the world around us and demonstrate what can happen when we truly love people. I pray that you would help us to be a people that aren't perfect. We're not going to be perfect. But God, I pray that you would help us to recognize our faults and to admit to them. And God, I pray that you would help us to understand this, this complex heart that we have that is so moved by things that are wonderful and beautiful. And they're so damaged by things that are hurtful. Father, I pray that you would bring healing within us. But I know that healing begins with a decision on our parts as individuals. That we are going to follow your will. We are going to follow your teachings. We are going to follow your heart. And we are going to follow the greatest example we could ever have. And that is the life of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that for those in this room that would like to experience what it's like to have a relationship with you, I pray that you would open their heart to a world beyond the one that they know. That they would experience a spiritual place that you exist where you love us and you speak to us and we can communicate with you. I pray that you would help them to experience the grace that comes in recognizing that Jesus gave his life on the cross to pay the cost of our sins. That there's nothing we did to deserve that. There's nothing we did to earn that. And there's nothing we'll ever do to pay it back. But I pray that you will help them to experience what it really means to know you. Help us to see our own faults. Not to be paralyzed by them. But to do what is right through them. We thank you for your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.